Hey guys, turkey season is in full swing right now, and if you are planning on getting after it, make sure to pick up some Meat Eater Phelps turkey calls to stuff into the old turkey vest or into your fanny pack right now. I carry a few different things. I like to use mouth calls, and I like to use pot calls. Mouth calls or diaphragms, I like them because it gives you hand-free calling, meaning when you're working a bird up close, you can have your gun on your knee, finger on the trigger, ready to roll, and still be making turkey sounds. I like pot calls. I just like pot calls. I enjoy calling with a pot call. Whatever direction you go, including a box call, which I don't personally use too much, but they're fun and great, and I started out with them. Yanni, on the other hand, one of my main turkey hunting buddies, he loves box calls. And what's funny is I'll now and then look to him and give him the look that means get out your box call and find us a turkey. So it's not that I don't like him. I just have Yanni use his. Then I don't have to carry it. Go to Phelps Game Calls. Get calls that are made in the USA and get calls that'll get them close. Find yours at phelpsgamecalls.com today. This is the Meat Eater Podcast coming at you shirtless, severely bug-bitten, and in my case, underwearless. We hunt the Meat Eater Podcast. You can't predict anything. Presented by First Light, creating proven, versatile hunting apparel from merino base layers to technical outerwear for every hunt. First Light, go farther, stay longer. All right, everybody. Uh, man, we're going to get into something where this is my favorite topic of all time. And these are two, we have two guests today that I've been wanting to get on. I'm going to, when I get into why, uh, why you're here, you're going to be extremely embarrassed. Okay. <laughs> Not, no, flattered and embarrassed. That's like good. how much, how, how jealous I am. Good. Of you two. Yeah, good. But uh, first, Giannis is here. Brody. How many times have you won Meat Eater Trivia now, Brody? Two. Two out, time, of, two uh, out of how many? Four? <laughs> Brody got a perfect score. Brody got a perfect score. But we realized, I realized something that there's a correlation between age and winning. See, I thought it was just reading articles no. and winning. Everybody <laughs> very, <that wins>. nope. <laughs> very small sample nope. size, Steve. You but could live with, that, the head, with your head in a hole and be old and yeah, win that thing. That's true. No, it's, you over, I realize over the years you accumulate answers to things, and it's just a race to... If my we wife had Dirk, if we had Durkin on and Durkin smoked everybody, then we'd know it was being old. Yeah, my wife thinks it has to do with memory, too. Like you got a bad just memory. A, good no, memory. A good one. No, that's what I mean. I mean, bad because it's not always good to remember everything. Right. You want a quick, funny Pat Durkin story from last week? Oh, yeah. You know how those Wisconsin boys that Doug Duran, who's a huge man, rolls around with are all large individuals? Have oh, you noticed that? Yeah, and they keep getting bigger as the night goes on. <laughs> and Pat like, Durkin. By the time Kiefer shows up, you think, like, there can't be a bigger man in Richland County. Like, the largest man in Richland County is now here. And, and then his Labrador gets out of the, the truck <laughs> and is the only lab on the planet where the truck, like, raises six inches when the dog gets out. You're like, what is going on here? And Can you imagine getting punched by Kiefer? Oh, my God. Or punched by Doug? No. No. Um, I think your bones would come out the other side of your skin <laughs> if Doug punched you. And you, you realize why they walk around like a little hunched over, right? It's like nothing is built for them. <laughs> anyway, 
Pat Durkin walks out into the middle of this group of gentlemen. And Pat, comparatively... He's not from Richland County. He's not from Richland County. <laughs> comparatively, he is quite small. One could say uh, pint-sized. And, you know, I, I asked Pat, I was like, Pat, what, what have you not been eating? <laughs> and he said, I used to march in a company of 80 men. And I'll tell you right now, I'm average sized. <laughs> uh, who else? Phil, Corinne. But then I want you guys now to introduce yourselves. And I'm gonna, then I'm going to embarrass you, our two guests. Like, talk about where, what, where you work. Whatever, however you want to do it. Just a quick intro. Okay. Um, my name's Dan Mann. I work at the University of Alaska in Fairbanks. But the, the Arctic biology deal. <laughs> well, that's changed recently. So oh, it oh, really? Yeah, oh. No, I used to be in the geography department, which was in geosciences, and then last year I quit and I went to the now I'm back in the Institute of Arctic Biology. Yeah, senior senior research scientist in the Institute of yeah. Arctic Biology. Yeah. Pamela. Uh, Pam Groves, and I'm also at the University of Alaska Fairbanks, and I've been in the Institute of Arctic Biology since 1987. Okay, now comes the part where I tell you how uh, I met you guys. You probably don't remember this. Do you know an individual named Mike Kunz? Very well. Okay. Many years ago, many years ago, I was in Mike Kunz field camp. I think it wasn't like by the Ivatuck. Ivatuck, yeah. I was in his field camp doing doing some I was working on uh, I was working on my own research project which involved tagging along on his one of his research projects and we were up hunting arrowheads out of helicopters on the north slope which is prime pickings for arrowhead hunting you two happened to come through while I was there you happened to pass through okay and Dan, you said a sentence that I stole from you and I have used a thousand times since then. You're the one to introduce to me the term alder choked hellhole. I think it was alder haunted hellhole because there's also a bear haunted hellhole. And there can be a moose haunted hellhole too. No, it might have been, but I swear it was an alder you had described going through an alder choked hellhole. And you guys were coming from doing what I thought would be the greatest job of any job on the planet. You were just coming off of a river trip where you floated out like umpteen dozen miles of Arctic River for the sole purpose of finding old-ass bones eroding out of the riverbanks, and you had found a horse skull, a Pleistocene horse skull, that you were feeling good about. I just overheard yeah. this all. So what, how old were you? Well, I'm 47 now, so I must have been, this has been in like 2004. So you, you were working for Outside Magazine? That's correct. And did you do a story on Mike and his? I did. Oh. Huh. And did I was you, with Tony Baker. Remember him? Yeah. He was a, he was oh, a, yeah. He, was a, yeah. he passed away, but he was an enthusiast. Right. Yeah, he was incredibly. He was like the world's expert on making certain tool types. Yeah, that guy was amazing. Um, I'm curious to know how you how you two passed through if you got there by a helicopter. 
Well, here's the deal with uh, like you'll have to explain that, but this place was so out there. Um, I think if you like look math mathematically, like what's the remotest place in North America? I think it's and you factor in. I don't know what the what the hell you'd factor in, but like proximity to to any road populations and roads. It's kind of like there. Yeah, it's the mm-hmm. pole of inaccessibility. And yeah. they had yeah. to take a. I can't remember what aircraft they used, but I was in it. They'd put fuel drums in the back of an aircraft. Yeah, it was on parachutes. It, it was the Casa from the BLM fire service. Okay, and they'd kick yeah. the fuel drums out here and there. Yeah, so that the helicopter, the helicopter couldn't get there on a tank of gas, and right. so you'd be flying along in the helicopter, and you'd have to land on some little knob, and go down into an alder choked hellhole. Right. And roll the barrel back up because it would have rolled off of where, off the landing zone. And they roll the barrel back up, uncork the barrel, hand pump gas into a helicopter. And you pass through, I guess, because you were just coming or going and it was kind of a hub. It's like a, I don't know, what do you call it? Like? Well, there's a landing strip at Ivatuck, so you could fly small single-engine planes in there from Fairbanks. And then from Ivatuck... In the BLM days, then there'd be helicopters that would ferry us out to wherever we were going to work. And then a week or two later, whatever the time frame was, pick us up. We'd usually go back to Ivatuck, pick up more food and go out again. And you were else. you were hiking when you were doing these excursions in this uh, particular place? Most of the time canoeing. We did some hiking, but we have... Uh, inflatable canoes that you could roll up and stick in the helicopter. And then that was my, I, I was trying to envision a helicopter camp in which you were passing through. How, like, are you showing your horse head out the window or are you coming through on a canoe? I didn't get to see the horse head. Oh, okay. So it was the landing strip with a camp. And then we'd, see, this is, we do like an aviation version of spike camping. So they got, the way this, this Mike Cunz worked, I'll just explain the whole damn thing now. This is in the NPRA, the National Petroleum Reserve, Alaska, which currently is is like relative to everything else, like relative to everything else on the continent is like like unexploited wilderness. But it is the petroleum reserve, and so they have you know the the, the powers that be um have the right to exploit the the oil resources, the mineral re- oil resources there, should there be need for this? And there's how many, like, there's like four petroleum reserves in the country. A couple of them are in California. It's basically like oil in the bank for an emergency, but they can tap it for whatever reason. And I don't know what it takes to be able to tap the oil, but it generally just sits there and it's kind of like, it's safe in the ground. Um, should we ever have, you know, World War Three, we have this oil to exploit. They were looking to do some leases on it, but they hadn't mapped, um, they hadn't done a cultural survey of the landscape. So that was sort of why this big giant arrowhead hunt was going on, is they were out mapping cultural sites. They didn't call it a giant arrowhead hunt. (laughs) They were out matching, they were out mapping cultural sites, which might in the future, um, make areas that would be hands off to oil ex- to oil drilling stuff you'd have to work around okay because there's like cult- significant cultural findings there 
it would basically come down to they'd get helicopters or in our case we had two our like our group had two helicopters that operated out of this big landing strip where you could also land fixed wing aircraft but then we would spike camp using the helicopters to land in places where you couldn't land fixed wing aircraft so you'd go into a new area like you might go 100 miles <clears throat> over yonder and set up a camp and then arrowhead hunt out of a helicopter from the spike camp. Were you looking for known cultural sites or looking for You'd look for sites. places where if you were camping, that's where you'd camp. And you'd land there. Like, let's say you got two rivers coming together and you got a big, like, V of land and it benches out. So, like, a, like a finger ridge sense. coming down, it benches out. You're 20 feet above the confluence of two streams. You can see every direction. You got water. There's a big flat spot. You'd land uphill from it or whatever on whatever place you could land. You'd walk down there. And a lot of times, you'd go down there and be like, oh, there's a big tent ring. All mossed over. But you could see the rocks. And you'd look in exposed ground and everywhere on the exposed ground be flint chips, projectile points. Because no one had ever picked it over. No one had ever picked it over. Everything here's, you know, I mean, there's still stuff laying around here, but it's been people been picking it over since. I mean, they knew as soon as they got done making stone points, they started picking them up. And then in the dirty 30s, like in the Dust Bowl, became like a real thing to hunt arrowheads. But there it's like, if some dude dropped something 10,000 years ago, just sp- still be laying there. And kind of what prompted this area is Kunz had found this site called the Mesa site. We're going to get back to you guys real quick here. <laughs> This mesa site is this prominent mesa that sits out. You get, watch it. Can you guys describe the mesa site? Yeah. So what happened was um, back in the seventies, they were doing some uh, exploratory well drilling. You got to get Mike down here to tell you about this, dude. We've been trying. Oh, he'd love this. He he. You got to do it. Listen, he, he's he like is somehow ultimate. waiting. He's waiting for. Well, the pandemic to end. You may have to take your <laughs> You, you may not to, live that long. Corinne's going to need to call him and be like, Mike, the pandemic isn't ending. <laughs> you got to take your studio to Fairbanks. But anyway, so they were doing this exploratory well dwelling, uh, drilling, and they had Mike along as the archaeologist. And they, they were like, we need some uh, shot rock, some fill to make road beds. Oh. So they said, look, there's a mesa over there. Why don't you guys go check it out and tell us there's no arrowheads, and then we'll go blow it up, and then we'll make a road, and we'll use it all for the fill to make highways or the make you know to the drill pad. So Mike went up there and he went, "Holy cow! There's like uh, projectile points everywhere." So he said, "You can't blast this place." So he collected a little bag that had some charcoal in it, brought it back to town, and it sat on his shelf for like a decade. And then another colleague of ours, Rick Rainier, said one day, "He goes, you know those stone." projectile points you found from that mesa, they're really strange. Why don't you let me radiocarbon date that little bag of charcoal you brought back? So they did. They sent it in, and it was like 11,500 years old. Hmm. It's like super old. And the projectile points, you've talked to Meltzer already. Oh, right? yeah, yeah. Yeah. So they're, they're very close in style to Folsom points, which are like early Paleo-Indian, or they're kind of late Paleo-Indian. Anyway, they're old from down here, this area. And so suddenly they had this really significant site on the Mesa. And so uh, Rick and Mike published this paper in Science Magazine, and Ted Stevens saw it, you know, our old senator. And he said, 
He called him up and he invited him to Washington, D.C., and he said, how much money do you guys need to continue this research? And Mike was so... What was his interest in it? It was Alaska. Oh, okay. So he was just a tireless promoter of Alaska. Exactly. Didn't care if it was... So he called him Uncle Ted. He didn't care if it was oil or arrowheads. Well, he was interested in native people and stuff. And so Mike... You got to ask Mike this, but the way he's told he me. He won't come on the show. Well, he will eventually. <laughs> so Mike said, I was just so surprised that I should have said $500,000 a year, but I just said 120000 and that's what he got. And so for the next <laughs> 10 years or something, Uncle Ted made a line item in the federal budget that Mike Kunz at BLM in Alaska would get 120000 a year to do whatever he wanted with. Dude, that's classic pork barrel right and there. That's what, <laughs> I love it. That he brought Pam and I in then because it was like, oh, we need somebody to go collect bones. Oh, so you guys were rolled into the Mesa site deal? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. we oh. worked around the Mesa site for... So what, it wasn't total What a good introduction you just stumbled upon, <laughs> Steve. <laughs> so you worked... Did you... Uh, so you worked up, like... Talk about the Mesa, like what it looks like. And it, it's not... It's not miles long. You've been there, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay. So it's... It's a... Um, Mike, again, you got to talk to him, but it's a... A place where the native people came 11,800 to about 10,000 years ago, and it was a hunting lookout. So you went there to kind of check out the caribou and probably the bison and to repair your stone points, okay, because they were always breaking whenever you miss something or whenever you hit a bone, you'd break the point. So they, you picture these guys sitting up there like telling tall tales and repairing their little projectile points, right? And they left, they'd have little horrors. So there are all these horrors. There's probably 50 different little horrors. What's that? Just a pile of charcoal. Where they had little campfires. Like a little fire. And and what's a, the word you're hearth. using? Hearth. Hearth. Yeah. Yeah, sorry. A it's a Tennessee word. pronunciation of hearth. Yeah. And well, so, I, I was just dragging it out. Yeah. Okay. Dragging so the, the word but out. But there are all bit. these, like, like Steve was saying, all this um, debitage, all this, these flakes. And then occasionally they'd, They'd have a broken point they couldn't repair, and they'd just toss it. So it's an amazing— uh, But but hundreds of them. Yeah. No, it, it turned out it was a gold mine for these things. But it has a very peculiar geology, and this is kind of interesting if you're into the geology. A lot of those other sites you visited out towards Utacock, they're on uh, sedimentary rock. And as a result, the frost action breaks up the rock, and it all kind of um, slushes downhill with frost action. The Mesa site's peculiar because it's on this dolerite, and it's deeply fractured bedrock. And so the water, it doesn't frost heave, basically. So that anything that was there 10,000 years ago is still there. But if you go to another kind of outcrop, like a lot of those you visited up by Utacock, it's long gone. It's down in the drainage somewhere. So it's just this amazing kind of coincidence of a place where ancient people used a lot because it's an amazing lookout site. And the geology was perfect for preservation. And to this was could... the oldest site that had been found in Alaska at that point. Of, well, it was in the, the northern part of yeah, Alaska. Yeah, in the northern so part of Alaska, yeah. Because when, when humans first came into North America, you know, they crossed the Bering Land Bridge and had to move through northern Alaska before they could get anywhere else on the continent. So these were the early people. And the, the other thing that's kind of interesting is it's, of course, the men that were sitting up on top looking out and nothing has been found of like a village or an actual settlement where the women and the kids would have been because that's down in the lower landscape that 
gets washed away as the rivers meander and whatnot. So that's what's the Mesa is so special because it's such a stable spot geologically. And how many yards long is that? I mean, it's, it was a couple hundred yards on top? It's probably 200 yards. And it's um, three sides are steep cliffs. And so there's only one. Remember, there's kind of a ramp that goes yep, up yep. on the south side. So it, it's kind of the other thing. I, I you got to ask Mike about this, but my theory always was that you know you you kill a caribou, you drag them back there, and then you're probably going to dry the meat because I don't think they're living there during the winter. So it would be a perfect place to um, prepare smoke uh, meat and hides that are safe from the predators and the scavengers because you're up on this kind of fortress, mm-hmm. right? So it'd be easy to keep the you know the bears and so forth away. Did you guys find on on the mesa? Did any bones come off that? Yeah, there was. A, <laughs> why'd one, you why'd you look at each other? Now? Well, it, it, there was one bone fragment they discovered really late in the excavation, and nobody knew what it was. It was just like this little piece of burnt long bone. And I'm looking at Pam because Mike was hoping she could figure out from the DNA what the species was, but you couldn't get DNA out of it. No, once. Maybe now somebody would have the technology. This was in uh, the 90s when the ancient DNA technology wasn't so good. And uh, DNA sits in a dead piece of tissue like bone. It degrades over time. And especially if it's been burned, the high temperatures cause further degradation. So it's really hard to get DNA out of old samples like that. Where's that bone sit now? I don't know, but now that you brought this up, I think we should um, send it to uh, <laughs> Beth and see if she can get some DNA out of it now. She's been on the show, Beth Shapiro. Really? She oh, talked yeah. about bison? We, we talked mostly about mammoths. Oh. No, we talked a bit about bison. Uh, I want to get into bison with you guys, too. How to clone a mammoth? Yeah. Well, we, talked about, got, that, we a, talked about that book, Hell yeah, We're trying yeah. to get her back on. And apparently, her husband's a Neanderthal researcher. Yeah. Which uh-huh. I think has gone back to Neanderthal. Has it? I think it's okay. I think it's back to being okay to say Neanderthal. I, I like uh, so many of these new discoveries are new technology discovering something that's been on somebody's shelf or in somebody's drawer that was actually taken from the ground in the, in the 70s, the 60s, the 50s. Um, and it, it's just like it's the ultimate hoarder's sport, right? <laughs> it's like, oh, don't throw that away. Yeah. So here's the perfect example. Pam, tell them about your polar bear skull from Lonely. You know, you uh, but, but Pam, before you do that, I just need <laughs> you to put a button on the bone. So you don't know what, you don't have a theory about what the bone is? Uh, my guess is probably caribou. Okay, all right. Just That's because good. caribou were by far the most common and easy to hunt. And Okay, because you guys gave each other a knowing glance. So I thought maybe you felt that it was like a human bone, but you didn't want to bring it up. No, and we've looked for human bones and never found any. I mean, when we've collected bits and pieces of bones, we, could that be human? And I've had brought some back and, oh, this could be. And then it usually ends up being a caribou Got or you. something because it's the size is such. Okay, so the pol- so do the polar bear, okay. and then I want to return later to in your wanderings. Um, what would be a like? I want to get back to the okay. human bone, the human bone question. So, so yeah. the the polar bear story, of course, starts with Mike Cunn. So, 
we were and Rick Rainier, the other guy from the Mesa. So the um, four of us were up actually right on the north coast of Alaska uh, near an old, uh, it was a dewline site, Lonely. What, what's that mean? Distance early warning site and oh. or early radar site from the Cold War. That was, what was the word? Dewline? Dewline, distance early warning. I They're see, these so. old big radar screens <clears throat> and to prevent red dawn right yeah. <laughs> so anyways we'd we'd land the helicopter dropped it the four of us off and um dan and rick went one way with their little handgun and mike and i went the other way and mike had a shotgun and right before we left we said asked mike because normally we work further inland than the coast and uh, do you ever see polar bears along this stretch Oh, uh, no, never this time of year. So Dan and Rick are walking along with just their little handgun, and they look on the beach, and there are these really fresh polar bear tracks, which are really distinctive because in polar bears, you can see the hair. They have all that hair on their feet. And so... Oh, the hair shows up in the track in the mud. They were so fresh in because the tide had just gone out so it was really obvious and so and it was kind of foggy so they're looking around <laughs> <laughs> and it, the helicopter disappeared in the fog you know so there was no way you could have waved a warning so they're going one way and Mike and I are going the other way and then I said to Mike so do you ever find bones up here along the coast and he goes nah and so we're just walking along and I look down and there's this bear skull and I pick it up and it's a polar bear skull and it's like in perfect condition and so we go oh well it must have been a polar bear that just died and so we collected it and then we brought it back and had it stored in our bone collection and then it was a couple of years later we had some extra or Mike had extra money for radiocarbon dating which is how you can tell how old a bone is. And we decided that we wanted to put some... You guys some... were like, everybody round up the neatest thing you can find. Well, and we decided... <laughs> you got like a punch card? <laughs> we, we'd already dated, and I'm sure we'll get into this, we dated all these different herbivores, caribou, mammoth, bison, horse, musk oxen. So let's do a bunch of carnivores. And you don't find nearly as many carnivore bones as you do herbivores because tr- you go... Up the trophic levels, there's fewer and fewer animals. So I said, oh, I got this polar bear skull. You know, it's modern, but maybe maybe it's 100 years old or something. So we sent in a date, and it came back, and it was greater than 43,500 years, which oh, is about the, the limit of uh, radiocarbon dating. Wow. So you say it's infinite, and we said, wow, that's amazing. I wonder if that's right. So we sent off two more dates to a different lab, two more samples to a different lab to get it dated as well. And both of those came back at greater than 50,000 years. Oh so it's like, wow, this just is a laying really out old on the beach. polar bear. It was just sitting just above the high tide line on the beach. Unreal. And so then I started looking and no ancient polar bear skulls have ever been found. There's some, there's one old polar bear bone from Svalbard, a part of a jawbone, and a couple bone, polar bone, polar bear bone fragments from Norway that are maybe around 100,000 years. And then there's our polar bear skull. Of course, it wasn't in any kind of 
stratigraphic context. So all we could say is it's older than radiocarbon age. And Do you think it had been moved a lot over the time? No, because it was in such good condition, it couldn't it have hadn't been, buried. been reworked. And so we actually ended up, um, we've collaborated with Beth Shapiro on a bunch of ancient DNA. And so he said to Beth, hey, we got this old polar bear skull. Are you interested? And she said, of course. And so we sent her a sample. And actually, last night, we were just reviewing this manuscript that's um, in review to be published on the DNA of this polar bear. And uh, What all can you tell about it? Are we allowed to say anything? Oh, come on. <laughs> <laughs> well, first off, the it's a female. Okay. And um, it's in the We named her Bruno. Yeah. Should be Brunella, but it's Bruno. <laughs> but it's in incre- incredibly good shape, so it hasn't been battered. So we think it was probably safely stored in permafrost for 90,000 plus years. I got it. Yeah. But the, the basic polar bear story... Uh, you got to get Beth to talk about this, but you'll be really interested because it has a lot to do with Southeast Alaska and the ABC bears, so Admiral T. Baranoff and Chichagov. Uh-huh. So if you, you've, did you hear all this stuff from her about the polar bear genes? And I've the, heard it from other folks, but yeah. just remind us, like, like uh, polar bears seem to be closely related to brown bears from the ABCs. Yeah. So, and, and they're not, and, and polar bears are... a you know, a, a younger species than yeah than brown bears. Like the, the the split went that way rather than the other way. Yeah, though it's I might be screwing this all up. Well, everybody else is confused about it too. Okay, but what seems to have happened was um, whenever there's a warm time in the Arctic, we start losing sea ice, like what's going on right now. So the polar bears are kind of shit out of luck. So they tend to come on shore, and when they come on shore, they encounter brown bears, and for some reason. Female brown bear, uh, female polar bears kind of like male brown bears. So there seems to be uh, brown bear genes go into the polar bear population via male brown bears breeding with female polar bears. So then during cold times, so picture the height of a glaciation, it's super cold. The Arctic is frozen. There's no leads, okay? So if you're a hunt, if you're a hyper predator like a polar bear and you're hunting seals, you're kind of out of luck because you need a place for the seals to come up, right? So the polar bear population... When you're saying a lead, you mean like cracks in the yeah, ice, openings in the, in the ice. ice. Yeah. yeah. So the polar bear populations tend to move south. So during the last glacial maximum, like 20,000 years ago, there were polar bears off the coast of Ireland, and they were all the way down in the southeast Alaska. Oh, huh. Yeah. So what we used to think happened then, this was like last year, this is what we thought happened was... Um, <laughs> Wait, it's amazing how... <laughs> How quickly shit about a long time ago changes. <laughs> yeah. So when the uh, glaciers started the retreat about 18,000 years ago, polar bears got stranded in southeast Alaska. Okay. So you can picture the sea ice is retreating back across the Gulf and then up the Bering Strait. So you got these poor polar bears and they're like s- stranded on these islands. And then what we think happened, we thought last year would happen, brown bears invaded from like Yellowstone and down here south of the ice sheet. And they came in and they met these beautiful female polar bears and they mated. And then uh, we had uh, polar bear mitochondrial DNA because that's inherited from the females is now in the DNA of these brown bears around, you know, on Prince of Wales Island and so forth. Okay. So um, there's this interbreeding. 
But it turns out from the old Svalbard mandible that Pam mentioned and this new, from Bruno, this new bear, it's much more complicated. And there's been multiple uh, hybridizations between these two bear species. And that's continuing today, right? Yeah. The, today it's kind of confusing because the, you know, the, you, you read about like in uh, Churchill where there's brown bears and polar bears are – uh, mating, but it, apparently there's only one female polar bear that's actually produced uh, fertile offspring from those crosses. She's had like eight cubs. She's had eight cross cubs. <laughs> yeah. they, they, were, they were all sexually viable. Well, p- supposedly, yeah. But I mean, who really knows? Because they're all wandering around everywhere. But so, <laughs> yeah. Which is where the name Growler Bear comes from. Grizzly. <laughs> <laughs> well, I didn't know that. But it's only Growler, right? Because it's a male know. grizzly bear. Oh, yeah. Right. Yeah. Or brown bear that term before. Yeah. Mm-hmm. People screwing it up. But what's yeah. the larger thing that's interesting, though, is that, you know, we used to think that species were just like unique, right? Yeah. And led to be like a black bear and a, um, a polar bear and uh, a brown bear. But that's not true at all. That we're finding more and more species. And bears are not alone in this. Ravens are another group that's. This is becoming more and more and more apparent. Is the species aren't like isolated little islands. There's often a lot of uh, hybridization going on, and this has been really important in their evolution. And if you want to be hopeful about something in a time like this, where climate is changing really rapidly, and we have all these ecosystems moving around, there, this is the perfect time for that. So, in some ways, we see a lot of extinction, but we also see a lot of new things happening evolutionarily. Yeah, we were just talking about mule deer moving into Alaska. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Right. So maybe we'll get mule deer and caribou hybridizing. (laughs) (laughs) Phil, think of a good name for a mule deer uh, caribou hybrid as you're sitting there. A mule (laughs) deer. Hey, before we move on, I have a question, one more question about the mesas that you were saying that they were often sitting up there repairing their points. How do you know they were repairing and not just making new ones? Um, Again, this you got to talk to the archaeologist, but he won't come on the show. <laughs> he will. You just got to go to him um, because around these little hearths, okay, there are all these broken points. Okay, so we know that they were once mounted. They have these little foreshafts. We're talking about not bows and arrows. We're talking about uh, spear throwers here. Mm-hmm. So you had a little uh, foreshaft that went on a longer thing. It had feathers on the end, and then you're throwing it with an atlatl. So they they often break, and so. Little hars, broken points, and then a lot of uh, flakes from making new points or repairing the old ones. And it's really funny. If you look at some of the Mesa points or Folsom points, you'll see that um, they have a beautiful base, and they go up, and then they had this shoulder. And the shoulder is where the point broke, and then the guys were like, oh, hell, I can fix this. And they just sharpen it up again. Do you, I, at the time that I was up at the Mesa site, I do want to move away from archaeology and get into you guys' specialty, which is paleontology, right? That's fair. But uh, a last archaeology point here. When I was up there, the enthusiasm around the site was that there was a lot of people talking about in that community, people talking about like pre-Clovis. So at that time, for, for, for many decades, I think it was held that like Clovis was this initial human culture. And then uh, there was this theory that there had to have been, like, Clovis had to have arisen from something. 
right? There had to have been a culture that created Clovis. So people were excited about that. And if I remember right, back then, a possible explanation for the Mesa site was that these people that, that were occupying that site and hunting there had possibly hadn't come, like their direct ancestors in, in a few generations hadn't arrived from Siberia, but had maybe backfilled. They had been, they were coming from the South and sort of recolonizing the North, which their very distant ancestors might've passed through. Is that still a fashionable notion or don't you track the changing theories that much? Yeah, no. What what Meltzer say? Can't remember. I asked him about it too. I don't know. I, you remember what Meltzer said about that? Jomi and Yanni got to hold those Folsom skulls when we when we visited Meltzer. Uh, Dan and Meltzer were in grad school together, so you guys still friends, or are you like rivals? Oh, no, I'm not an archaeologist. Yeah, no, I've worked. <laughs> I've worked with Dave at the Folsom site. Oh, yeah, you did the Folsom site. Well, I was doing the geomorph around the Folsom site. So, oh man, yeah, that was a great place. More jealousy kicking in, Steve. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. he's like the he's like Forrest Gump, Gump archaeologist. Like, <laughs> if you've never been to the Folsom site, you got to go there because it's an amazing, amazing place. But um, yeah, so that's just the backwash hypothesis is what you're talking about. Oh, that was the name. I don't yeah, remember. Mike that name. doesn't like this, so <laughs> that's why we're hesitating. To Tony this. Baker was big into it. Was he? But he was a he was a enthusiast, you know. Yeah, no, mm-hmm. a, a lot of people are big into it because it, it's looking now, and you guys know this from talking to Dave Meltzer, is that um, first um, dispersal of humans into the New World was probably along the northwest coast, so probably down through southeast Alaska, mm-hmm. and so then Clovis took off probably as people broke in from the coast into the interior kind of habitats. And bison by that time would have ranged all the way up through the ice-free corridor up into the Yukon and onto the North Slope. And so it would have been, you know, probably good hunting. So they could well have spread back to the north. And that's why Mesa Points look so much like Folsom Points is because they originated from, you know, the lower 48, those people. But um, you're, you're like on the edge of... Uh, there's still a lot of archaeological controversy about this. So shouldn't listen to us. Yeah. 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 We're not archaeologists. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna swing us into paleontology, but yeah, I'm do, much... watch how watch how smoothly I do it. Okay. Okay. Uh those fellers sitting on top of the Mesa site. What are they what were they seeing? You put in a good four day hunt on the Mesa site. Like what walks past? And had they been there a thousand years earlier, would it have looked way different in terms of what would have walked past? Um, it could have. The thing is, you probably could have sat there for a couple of days and not seen anything walk past. And that's one thing that been I there. think people, yeah. <laughs> familiar with that. Yeah, like, I have been to that spot. It's changed. People think Alaska is, you know, this wilderness just crawling with animals and even back then, there were all these megafauna, we call them, the large animals. Still, they were dispersed over a huge area, and the carrying capacity of the land probably wasn't all that huge. So um, that's why it was important to have a strategic lookout. And since there are no trees, you could see a long way. So 
especially if it happened to be a mammoth, you could probably spot it way off in the distance. And but, so, like, these animals aren't, like, they're not living in a valley. Like, they're constantly traveling as, like, for their food needs well, or reproduction or migration or... it. It's not clear how far they would have traveled. I mean, basically, an animal wants to travel as little as possible because moving uses up energy, and it just depends on what food resources are available to you. But they probably had some seasonal movements between winter and summer feeding grounds, and just like caribou, most caribou populations in the north are migratory, and some of them travel a thousand kilometers. Some of them travel fifty kilometers. So it really depends on their habitat. But that said, the the herbivores that could have been seen from the mesa site would have included caribou and musk oxen and which still exist on the North Slope today. And then there also could have been mammoths, bison, and horses. And then if they had really sharp eyes, they could have also seen bears, wolves, and there were lions running around up there. And uh, not a lot of them, but they could have seen those animals as well. What was the lion like? Big. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're a little like bit, a mountain no, lion? No. Like little, an African lion. A little bit bigger than any living lion. Whoa. Um, and they're thought because of the lack of a mane, and we know the lack of a mane from the cave paintings in Europe, that they were probably uh, not living in prides. They were probably much smaller social groups because that's what the mane is for is the boss around other big lions. So... But the, one of the interesting things we found with our bone collections on the North Slope is that the horses are the main um, uh, large animal as the ice Most age. Most numerous. Yeah. Really? So it, like they, they would outnumber caribou? Back then? Probably, yeah. How many kinds of horses? Just one. Okay. At, in the late part of the ice age. They were more earlier. But and what did it look like? It looked kind of like, um, have you ever seen pictures of the little ponies from Yakutsk? Yep. Okay, and they have this incredibly long hair. I know it only because my daughter has like a like an encyclopedia of horses. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So picture a kind of a large, fat Shetland pony with really, really long right, fur. Like real sturdy. <clears throat> Very yeah. sturdy. And these little tiny holes, like, you know, like this big, hmm. which immediately tells you something about the landscape, right? Because there wasn't all that tussocks and peat up there. Yeah, big feet, you would think, you would associate larger feet would always be the preferable foot for anything to do with Alaska. Yeah. We can talk about that when we talk about why they're not there anymore. <laughs> but the thing about um, that Dan started to allude to is the horses and lions, when we compiled this huge collection of all these bones, the lion bones that we had dated uh, track and number the horse bones. So our theory is is the lions specialized in hunting horses. Oh, and as horses went down, lion numbers went down. Yeah. Yep. 
and and that would make sense, especially if they were solitary or small groups, like a horse would be much easier prey than, say, a mammoth or even a bison with horns. And it appears that there were lots of horses, so it would have been easier to find a horse to munch on if you were a lion. I want to tell you about an American-made success story and Black Buffalo's award-winning nicotine pouches. Black Buffalo was built by dippers with decades of smokeless tobacco use. Black Buffalo is all about the history and tradition of dip, but they understand the convenience and discretion modern-day consumers are looking for. Black Buffalo's nicotine pouches give you the versatility to consume discreetly, but keep the ritual with flavors dippers love. Mint, straight, and wintergreen, all proudly made right here in the USA. Tell them, Chili. The reason I like black buffalo pouches is, one, they're very discreet. And what I mean by that is I can throw one in and almost forget it's there. And I prefer the mint pouches. So if you're 21 or older, consume nicotine or tobacco and want to join the black buffalo herd, head over to blackbuffalo.com to learn more. You can order nicotine pouches online. They ship directly to most states or check out their store locator to purchase pouches at thousands of retail locations around the country. Black Buffalo Tobacco Alternative. Bold flavor, full pouches. Warning, this product contains nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. Black Buffalo products are intended for adults age 21 and older who are consumers of nicotine or tobacco. O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? you need a brake light fixed? you need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself, and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. Hey, man, after years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if you've learned anything, it's that there is always a catch. So when I heard that for a limited time, all Mint Mobile wireless plans are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan, I thought, well, what's the catch? But it turns out there isn't one. Mint Mobile's secret sauce is that they sell wireless service online. They cut out the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. Ditch overpriced wireless with Mint Mobile's limited time deal and get three months of premium wireless service for 15 bucks a month. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, Go to mintmobile.com slash meat eater. That's mintmobile.com slash meat eater. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash meat eater. 
$45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 per month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Can you guys explain a little bit about, you, you allude to your bone collection. Explain a little bit about how you built up a bone collection. Well, the first thing that we should say is uh, collecting these bones, it was all on federal property, and we did it either while we were working for the Bureau of Land Management or when we had a permit from the Bureau of Land Management to collect these bones, and all the bones are in the University of Alaska Museum Earth Sciences. Yeah, I got, like you're not you're not hoarding for your no, we you're don't not hoarding have, for your own shadow no, box. No, we home. don't have our walls adorned with skulls and tusks. It's all federal property, and it's all uh, there's a database you can access online, and all the bones are listed in there. And you, you're probably, and I'm guessing, very meticulous about where it came from. What was the context? Yeah, I have all that information yeah. on my computer. But um, yeah, so so that's the first thing that we collected these bones, and it's it's a federal crime to go onto federal property and collect archaeological or paleontological specimens. Uh, you can end up in jail or with a big fine. There well, was... that's if it's fossilized, right? Well, no, it doesn't have to be fossilized because many of these bones that we find, they've been stored in a deep freezer in the Arctic for thousands and thousands yeah, of years. Yeah, but how do they spell They're it out? Because you can, but you can pick up a shed antler from a caribou. Right, but if you uh, found a mammoth bone, that would be regarded as paleontological, oh. even if it was just came out of permafrost tundra and was looked like a fresh bone. Gotcha. Even if it had meat on it, it's still so. Um, yeah, the, the key thing is the paleontological aspect. In other words, how old the thing is. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And there's been a couple of incidents where professional like river guides have collected. Oh, I know the story. Yeah, okay. So we don't need to go into that. So, But, <laughs> but if you could tell the story, I would love – I never knew enough detail to tell the story. Uh, Can I tell you a version I've heard? Is that you, uncomfortable? Are you sure you want to put this on your podcast? <laughs> well, no, but kind of. Okay. Yeah, okay. sure. You, you know this lady, huh? No. Oh. No. But let me tell you a version I heard. I heard that there was a – gentleman in the lower 48 who had a living room display. Am I right? Had a living room display of a nice mammoth tusk. And someone got to wondering, how the hell did he get a mammoth tusk? And that led to a um, investigation. Yeah, the story <laughs> I heard was... Um, <laughs> It, uh, somehow a photograph got on a website and it was like, come on my river guided tour and you might be able to find things like this. And then there was some photograph floating around of the guy's living room. Oh. So that was how the two were connected. But it's so ironic. Like if you, I still remember going to um, this uh, uh, pilot's house in Kotzebue once 
And, you know, I was like, hey, do you ever find any bones? And he goes, oh, come on in, I'll show you. And the guy had this incredible <laughs> collection of mainly bison, but also um, bear and mammoth. And I was like, well, what are you going to do with this? And he goes, don't tell anybody I have it. <laughs> yeah. So there's a lot of this stuff floating around. It is, it, it is legal if it is from your, your mining claim. Yeah. Is it, is it all, isn't there also something where native Alaskans are allowed to take those things and keep them? Or am I, am I wrong? About I, th that? I think if it's on their um, private property, oh, so it's okay. like their own allotment or their or native tribal corporation, land or, tribal yeah, lands. Yeah. yeah. Then it is. But anyway, it's, it's a sensitive thing. And, uh, you know, you really got to be careful because there's, what shocked me about this river guide incident was that Bureau of Land Management, the Department of Interior actually has a task force whose job it is to investigate these things hmm. and go after people. And it was like, holy cow. They have undercover agents. And yeah, it's, it's like, I think it's like scouring important. online sales and stuff. Of, <laughs> yeah. yeah. I think it'd be important to talk about why we have these laws. Well, well yeah, the most, probably the, the strongest uh, emotions about this come from the archaeologists because they go, do not pick up an arrowhead. Man, I've, gotten, I've gotten in huge trouble just picking up something. And go, hey, look at this. And they go, where'd you get that? Put that down. Because you're, you're taking it out of context. And so, therefore, if they go out and they're trying to figure out something about some archaeological site, you've, you've been messing with the data. It'd be like if someone messed up a crime scene almost. Oh, yeah. 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 Exactly. That's a really good uh, analogy. So, the same with these bones. You know, you've a, a bone that's out of context that you don't know somebody's uncle found it, you know, like who who knows where, then it's it's pretty much useless scientifically. And it's just going to sit in somebody's, you know, coffee table and decay and then they'll, somebody will throw it away. So it's it's like gone. So best thing is if you ever run across one of these things, even like an arrowhead, just take a photograph of it. And then I call up your friendly um, archaeologist and say, hey, I found this amazing point. It's going to change our, our uh, the history of the world. Yeah, I, I just you. think it's pretty interesting that at some point in our recent past, we, you know, thought to think that far ahead that, hey, this stuff is so important mm -hmm. that we should make like federal rules and laws, you know, to protect it. Like, it seems like a lot of foresight for... I don't know. Sometimes it doesn't seem like we have that. <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah. yeah, because, you know, there are all those museums that have uh, human archaeological remains, and now they're busy repatriating remains to mm -hmm. the uh Oh, yeah, like just going and digging up from, people's but, graveyards and hauling away yeah, their, you know, their remains of their ancestors. 150 and... years ago, people just ransacked archaeological sites. and. You know, I was reading a thing recently about the – there was a thing in the Atlantic about um, people working on the coastal passage of early humans. And they were talking about, you remember when we went spearfishing with Greg and Alex out the Channel Islands? Mm -hmm. They're talking about in, in the, the, the native peoples on the Channel Islands, them remembering people digging their gra the graveyards of their ancestors. They remember archaeologists digging those graveyards, complaining about the stench of rotting carcasses. Wow. Digging active. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it, it, what it got into was it got into a, uh, why there's a great reluctance on the part of some native peoples to participate. 
in the archaeological process. Yeah, you know, yeah. that was like a, a, a scar why. in their mind. Is <laughs> like, yeah. like, the, like literally the bones of their grandfathers being hauled grandpa. off by. Yeah, yeah, like literally the bones of their grandfathers being dug up by archaeologists and hauled away to a museum. Yeah. Oh. So back to how you make a bone collection the right way. Okay. So yeah, so, uh, so you co- you covered your ass. So it's a legit bone collection, <laughs> and it's not in your living room. So we fly into a place like Ivatuck and then put all our stuff on a helicopter and get flown out, and we say, "Oh, that looks good," <laughs> and the helicopter. And what is all your stuff? So if it's just the two of us, we have one inflatable canoe. We have a sleeping tent and a cook tent. Um, some years we carry it an electric fence for bears and then, you know, just a little camp stove and food. Freeze-dry food? No. <laughs> <laughs> so you guys pack, you get not actual food, but you pack food. Yeah. You do a little fishing on the way? When you're floating? Occasionally. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, usually we don't because of the bears. Okay. Yeah. It just, you know, just complicates things yeah. having to deal but, with that. But, you know, we usually would eat until Dan couldn't eat couscous anymore, couscous, polenta, <laughs> rice. So we're usually Dime out meat. for three weeks or so. So three-week river trips. Yeah. So, the, it, I mean, it's actually kind of boring. You. You float along, and then she says, oh, well, there's a good gravel bar. So she gets off, and she walks the gravel bar, and I pedal the canoe upwind to the other end of the gravel bar and pick her up. And then she usually <laughs> shows up with a bunch of bone fragments, and we lay them down in the sand, and we look through them and go, well, that's interesting. That's not interesting. That's well-preserved. That's not well-preserved. And if they're not, if they're not collectible, we just throw them back in the river. So they, they never leave the place where they were, yeah. So we we rarely, I mean, we probably collect like one percent of the bones that we actually encounter on a good day. How many bones do you find doing a trip like that? Oh, on a really good day, it uh, it's interesting because there's a sort of a sorting process that, that the river does with bones, and so there are certain places and gravel bars that kind of accumulate bones, and so you could on one gravel bar find like maybe five tibios or humerus or femurs from different species. Um, But on a really good day, I would guess we might end up collecting 50 bones. And most, most commonly you'd find long bones like the leg and arm bones and foot bones and then of course, a mammoth bone is a lot more significant than a little caribou bone. Um, and then skulls are pretty exciting when you find skulls. We, um, you know, there's a lot of, mammoths are big animals, right? So their bones just blow up sort of. So there's a lot of mammoth material. And tusks are big and they're well-preserved, but we never collect tusk anymore. You so don't? No, so if you find a tusk, you kind of go, well, that's cool, and then, and then you put it back in the river. Just <laughs> leave it laying. Just leave it laying. But we yeah. have collected. Hold on, do you throw it out in a deep hole, <laughs> or do you just leave it laying where you found it? And usually we put it back in the water because it's easier on them, and they'll get reburied that way. But the what wow. I was going to say was <laughs> – Steve's just like, ah! you know, I've told this story a hundred times, but when I was doing that stuff with cons, and they'd find those sweet spear points. 
and then uh, photograph them, draw them. They showed me how they draw them. Like they sketch them, mm-hmm. photograph, and then just stick them right back in the moss, man. <laughs> it was like it took every like all of my willpower, <laughs> the all lust. my willpower to walk away. <laughs> But, I, mean, I was like, I, have, I'd be like, I'm going to sneak back yeah. here in the dark. <laughs> but it never got dark. We have collected some big tusks. And... Yeah, one of the tusks we collected, I don't know if you saw this article that Matt Wooler was the first author on that came out in science. Just recently. Yeah, yeah, this year. Oh, yeah. No, we were hot on that article. The, the wandering mammoth thing. Oh, yeah, yeah, man. So this was a tusk that we found. Actually, you guys found that tusk? Yeah. So the, this is really? another Mike Cunn story. So Mike said... He said, well, you guys go out and to the eastern part of the dune field, which is kind of the northern part of the NPRA. So we were flying around, and we saw this gigantic mammoth tusk. Hold on, it back up. You're bone hunting from the air, or you're flying to a yeah. river to float it. Well, we were kind of doing both. But It's a land so packed full of good stuff <laughs> that you can just fly over and pick it out with the naked the, eye. The tusk was so big that you could see it from the helicopter at about 500 feet. So we land and wow. it's got... Uh, what is it doing? It's just sitting on the side of the river. <laughs> so we're like looking at this thing and go, no, this is not worth anything. It's a bull tusk. So it's huge diameter. It's probably eight feet along the arc, but it's all... Just laying out. Just laying there. It's, it's all badly Why weathered. would you say it's not worth anything already? Was it like a beam of sunlight shining through on it? <laughs> yeah. like, Do you gather that it's worth a lot to the folks in this room? <laughs> well, it seems like there is a lot of interest here, yeah. So we told Mike, and he goes, well, well, what, was, yeah, what was your question, Johnny? I could, well, you were being facetious or serious that you just, you're seeing like the, something it, like this it, and you go, eh. It wasn't well enough preserved. Uh, it was yeah. really weathered. But wait, we're going to get to what happens when you find a really well preserved one. So we go back and Mike goes, well, I want to see this thing. So he comes out with a shovel and sure enough, he finds the, the, the pair. He finds the other one. <laughs> so then we have this elaborate. Where was the other one? It, it was in the creek. It was like right there because they're really big. So the creek's not able to move it very far. So we have these, these, fo- <laughs> these ridiculous photographs of Mike posing with these two enormous mammoth tusks. I, don't, I think he used it for his Christmas card or some damn thing. <laughs> and How much put was it back in, like that way? Like a, the, oh, we weighed it. Yeah, we brought this bathroom scale out there with us to weigh it. They were like uh, 140 pounds Holy each. Shit. Oh. <laughs> so can you imagine this bull mammoth is carrying this weight? Okay, so we're there, and it's like, I'm like, this is a total waste of time, you know. So we start looking around, and we find another tusk, and it's sticking out of the gravel. So um, we start digging around, and we, we come up with the skull, two beautiful tusks. They're exquisitely preserved, also a bull, so they're really big diameter at the base, but not so long. They must have died in a fight. Well, this was a little bit upstream. Oh, okay. So we brought this back in radio, carbon dated it, and it was very young, relatively young. It was like 18,000, 19,000. And that's the one that was so well preserved that we decided to section that one and do the um, the annual growth ring. Yeah, tell the whole damn story now about how they fit together, like ice cream cones and all that stuff. <laughs> yeah, well, so, hey, he said it. So the, the tusks grow kind of in a conical, it's like, a stack of ice cream cones, okay? And so by, the hardest thing about this whole analysis was uh, we have this machinist friend and it was, um, how are we gonna cut this thing down the axis? And it's it's cut this kind of slow helical bend to it. So that, <laughs> that took us eight, it took eight people eight hours with a bandsaw <laughs> to cut the thing. 
And it was, it was, yeah, it was incredibly complicated. But we ended up sectioning it in two. And hopefully one half is going to show up in the museum at some point. And so then you could see the little growth rings in well, it. Well, you have to sand it way down. Yeah. And so then it's polished. And then it can be uh, analyzed for these. Uh, and once it's polished, you can see the growth rings. Yeah. Yeah. So then from that, it was apparent the thing was about, what, 35 years old or so? He wasn't very old. Yeah, a young. And and what was their lifespan? Uh, Assuming they, you know, how old are you, Crin? <laughs> oh, yeah, Crin's <laughs> older. Like than if that they man. reached old <laughs> age, uh, it's it's not. It's like uh, elephants. Yeah, so it's probably so sixty to eighty 60s, years, okay, yeah. somewhere like that. So he wasn't all that old. He was kind of middle aged prime. prime. Yeah, and he's so, middle aged at thirty five. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> so when uh, Matt Wilder did the uh, strontium isotopes and the nitrogen isotopes on this thing, he put together this scheme where he could track. Where but you got to explain that, but how he went around gathering up all those rodent teeth and stuff. Y- yeah, so it's there's actually more to it than that because there was a <laughs> there was a grad student before who started this thing working on salmon because you can trace where the salmon are coming from, from the strontium in the, the water from their streams. Strontium is what's known into their as bone. a yeah. stable isotope, and it, um, it's the same as true of carbon, and that's what radiocarbon dating is based on, these stable isotopes that can break down over time. And so, yeah, so Alaska has this really diverse geology, and it, it varies in the, the amount of the strontium, this rare earth element. So by looking at the amount of strontium in different years of the mammoth's tusk, he was able to figure out, well, where did that mammoth probably live during that year of his life? And and if you had looked at like a mouse that has a very small home range, it would just it all be consistent. Strontium value. Because yep. yeah. he wasn't ranging across right. different zones with different strontium yeah. levels. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So from that, um, they were able to put together where this animal probably ranged. And we think it probably was born somewhere down um, kind of in the lower Yukon and then wandered around up past Fairbanks and then later in life came back cross, up the Koyukuk, went across Brooks Range, ended up on the North Slope where we found it. And the interesting thing from the nitrogen isotopes, um, it looks like the thing probably starved to death because when you begin to starve to death, you begin to break down your muscles and you, they have a characteristic um, – nitrogen isotope ratio. So you're like eating yourself. Mm-hmm. And so we think the thing starved to death. And your question is, well, why would a 35-year-old middle-aged bull mammoth starve to death? I don't know. Why do animals die? But we, we never know. found any of his leg bones. We dug and dug and we never found any. So we don't know. We So we didn't find the rest of his skeleton to know if See if he had any injuries that were obvious or anything. So, yeah, you could see why a legless mammoth wouldn't live to old age <laughs> for sure. I can jump to that one. <laughs> that might be a paper for you. Yeah. <laughs> Obviously, <laughs> he had no legs. Do you guys ever find stuff that um, there's a concern for preservation? Like it, it's gonna like somehow deteriorate if you don't get it like handled or treated in some way. Well, we have um, occasionally found 
Pleistocene era bones still with soft tissue and bison bob, the um, skeleton we found had a lot of soft tissue. And so obviously that has to be frozen or it would just rot yeah. away. Yeah. Tell the story yeah. of bison bob. But like what you were doing so when you found it. Too. Bison Bob, we were paddling down the river. We'd actually just paddled through a hailstorm, and we had a favorite campsite a little bit downriver, so we were looking forward to getting to our campsite. Oh, so you've been on one river enough to, you'll do one river more than once. Oh, we've been <laughs> did, doing them for 20 years, so every bend has a name, and we have our favorite. Why are you doing the same rivers over and over again? High well, water, right? There, there's a couple of things. First of all, there are not many rivers that have the right characteristics to preserve bone. It has to be a fairly slow river with um, and fine sediments. If it's a bouldery river that's really fast, any bones that get incorporated in the river get broken up. Okay. And also... and. Going to the same places over and over again for 20 years, you really get to know and understand the system in a way that you can't if you just bop in a couple times over a space of a few years. And to me, that's one of the really important lessons of this research we've been doing is having these long-term data sets and really getting to know the area. To me, it's really helped us understand how the system functions and be able to better put together the information we put in papers about how the animals live. So anyways. What was the what, the first time you go down a river, is it way better pickings than the second time? Or is new no, stuff constantly churning that's, up there? Every year is different. And that's when people say, don't you get bored? And you never get bored because every year is different. And it might be related to how much of a spring flood there was or, you know, if some bank got cut away. And so, and how high the river is, how clear the water is. Um, one year, it seemed like we drug our canoe almost the whole way because the water was so low, but it was really clear. And so we were finding bones in the bottom of the river channel that we never would have seen. Okay. And, that you'd floated over a bunch of times. Yeah. yeah. And so every year it's like a clean slate. And Do you ever got to get in, uh, get into your uh, swimsuit and go down there and swim down and grab something? Well, not a swimsuit, but <laughs> I... I sent a picture somewhere of Dan in a dry suit with flippers and a mask, and my niece was with us, and she had a wetsuit, and they did try snorkeling to look in the bottom of the river. But um, my niece, when she came up with us, often would just walk in the river and find stuff or you feel stuff with your feet. Hmm. So so uh, that, that snorkel trick didn't work good for you? Uh, no, it didn't work well at all. Visibility. Let's just leave it at that. Oh. <laughs> it's a great photo. Was though. it a personal comfort thing or a visibility thing? Uh, both, actually. The river is really cold, so after about an hour of flopping around in there, and then you know, it's little things like you know, when you have flippers on, you got to walk backwards to get out, yep. and then you fall over, and everybody's laughing at you. 
Got it. Yeah, and you're just not finding much. And the dry much. suit has yeah. big bubbles of air in it. Yeah, so you, you kind of look like a hunchback in Notre Dame. And, and you it, can't dive down. Yeah, it just goes on and on. Uh, so no, yeah, th- sure. th- that's not recommended. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now, even though you've, and I understand going back to the same place 20 years in a row, and I feel like the same way about certain places I like to go hunting, you know, and just the intimacy that you gain yeah. after just being mm-hmm. there over and over and over. But at the same time, we all pour over maps all the time looking for like the next great spot. So do you do that also and kind of look at the gradients of certain rivers and go, man, that one could be the honey hole? And that was the advantage of working with Mike and BLM is having the helicopter. And that's like when we found the wandering mammoth, we had the opportunity to fly around to different places. And so over the course of the decades, we did check out a lot of other places. But unless you have a helicopter most of those places, you just can't get there. Yeah, Mike's annual budget for those helicopters, when you were there, it was over a million dollars a year. There were some summers we had three aircraft, and so we could literally just look at a map, like you were suggesting, and just go, hey, we want to go check out this river. And he should, sure, go. And it'd be like, I don't know, 20 grand. We'd blow in an afternoon flying around. Mm. And sometimes it panned out and sometimes it didn't. Now we're really hobbled because now it cost us, if we drive the Coldfoot, okay, the southern edge of the Brooks Range, it cost us $10,000 to charter a beaver for a drop-off and a pickup. So that means we only get one river and we only have one reach of that river that we can float where in the old days when Mike, before Mike retired and he was the emperor of the Arctic, then uh, we could get like <laughs> 10 times more done in a, you know, in a little field season. Yeah. So Bob the Bison. So. Hailstorm. So hailstorm, we're paddling, we're hoping to get to Cottonwood Bluff campsite. And, but as we paddle, we're always looking and uh, there's something up there on the riverbank. And then we're, we always try and guess ahead what it is. It's a bison. No, it's a muskox. And so we got to it, and it was a bison skull kind of partially buried right at the river level, upside down, and we could see one horn and part of a mandible. And so we stopped and... For some reason, skulls are the most exciting bones to find. And so we dug it out carefully. Let let me stop you real quick. When you see a bison skull, you know, just based on what we understand about the timeline there, you know it's at least what years old? 12,000. 12,000. Okay. So So, just the fact that you laid eyes on it, you know here's something. Yeah. So, and um, so we excavated it and it turned out to be a complete skull with the mandible there and one horn sheath the other side just had a horn core but it was in immaculate condition so we dug it out and (laughs) we put it in the water to kind of rinse it off and all this gunk came out of the eye orbit like it was the rotten eyeball oh really still in there and so we were working kind of focused on the skull, and then as we were cleaning it up, looked around, and just a little bit up the bank, oh, there's a few more bones, and oh, look at that's a bison metatarsal, like a kind of wrist was or there, ankle bone. Was there an odor of like rotten it, meat or, or? Not really with the skull. No? The skull also had um, 
a lot of the brain was still mm-hmm. in there. So that all dribbled out into the river. Yeah. It was pretty disgusting, <laughs> this kind of white, fatty stuff. Oh, oh yeah. Uh, I've, I've dealt yeah. with that inside. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, wow. so we saw these bones close by, and then, you know, we started looking farther and farther up the bluff, and there were more and more bones, and we go, wow, there's a lot here. And... um but then it was getting late, so we put the skull in the canoe and went and camped. And the next day, went back. It was just like a hundred yards back up river, and went up the bluff about thirty feet. And we could find bones sticking out of the bluff. It's very fine sandy sediment, and so we started retrieving bones. But then. Uh, a lot of the bluff was still frozen and the bones were frozen in. So we had this one little bucket and one of us would go down to the river and fill the bucket up and carry it up and pour it over. It took three days, I think, to get all the bones out. And as we went farther into the bluff, that's when we started to find hair and uh, tissue and like the Front legs, when we excavated them, the bones were still articulated, attached to each other, you know, and the um, humerus and the radius ulna were attached. And uh, we found, oh, a bunch of the vertebrae from the back were still all articulated. But the, the neatest thing were actually the hooves because... It was a big bison. It was a, a bull, and Dale Guthrie thought it was probably 12 years old. Mature bull. A very mature bull. And they're, they're very uh, tall. Tall and you know how buffalo are kind of thin, um, narrow if you look at them from the front or from the back? Mm-hmm. So like that, but kind of on steroids, so even taller. and But with these dainty little holes. So the holes were like, I don't know, something like that. No. And uh, that, the size and it, of a, they, uh, like little high heels. Like, yeah, like yeah. And it still had the sheaths, the hoof sheaths were still attached. And I mean, you, just so our listeners get a better idea, you're you're showing me like four inches across? Yeah. Like a little lemon yeah. kind of. So like almost smaller than like a caribou's hoof. Yes. Yeah. 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 So again, we're talking running on hard surfaces. Yep. They're not running on tundra. Like, like grassy, grassy yeah. plains yeah. kind of yeah. stuff. Yeah. And so the if you look on the bottom of the of the hush sheath, it still had the little scratches where he'd like run over rocks and stuff. Really? And but it looked it like really it was cool. from an animal that had died like three weeks ago. It was so fresh. It, the, and we found three hoof sheaths. And then we also found as the sediments um we thawed out and came off. There was this little point sticking out, and eventually that became the other horn sheath. Oh, that, oh, really? And so we eventually found the only really big bone we were missing was one scapula, and then there were some of the little wrist and ankle bones, but we found all the little vertebrae from the tail that go down to these tiny little things like half-inch in diameter. So what what does your canoe look like when you <laughs> Oh yeah, that's that's my, well, well we we ferried we made numerous trips back to camp and we had we actually had a tarp that we spread them out on, but then this was uh the other lucky thing about Mike is we did have a satellite phone, so we called up and said, Hey Mike, 
we've got this bison skeleton and it's actually starting to smell and there's flies coming around and we're worried that some bear's going to come. And so he sent the helicopter over and we uh, flew it back to Ivatuck and then flew it to Fairbanks and stuck it in a freezer. And what were you able to find out about that animal? Um, And why do you think it was so well, like how did it get so well preserved? Yeah, that, and if you can, and why you're explaining that is also explain how an animal of that size could just die out there somewhere and not get scavenged. Well, and then can I ask a follow up? (laughs) (laughs) No, I'm still, I'm still stuck on the, on the uh, eyeball socket and the brain in there. Is that if there's any like soft tissue from that creature that would be worth saving that would, you know, give you information you couldn't find from, from hard tissue bone? Um, I guess, well, from the hair, you can do various isotopic analyses. And we haven't done anything with any of the soft tissue. It's all frozen. But um, what was Giannis's question? Oh, just how an animal. Uh, oh, could... yeah, why didn't someone so, eat it? Well, one theory that we came up with is along that stretch of river, there's a lot of quicksand and because sometimes you're walking along dragging the canoe or something and all of a sudden you go whoop and get sucked in. And so this is another thing about bison with small feet. They'd be really vulnerable to quicksand going in. And um, so one theory is, because he was a bull in his prime, that he got stuck in quicksand and couldn't get out. And so he might have died actually in the river, in which case... Uh, he wouldn't have been heavily scavenged because come winter, he would have just gotten buried over by the river sediments, frozen in. And then we think because the sediments that we actually, we found his skeleton in were about 11,000 years old. So probably he died over 40,000 years ago and was just interred in these sediments. And then at some point, the river moved away from where he was, and then it moved back, exposed him. He toppled down the bluff a little and got reburied. And then if we hadn't come along and found him, he would have toppled into the river again. But by then, the bones would have gotten dispersed more and more. And because we went back to that section twice more that summer to see if we could find anything else. And the whole face of the bluff had just collapsed. So if we hadn't been there when we'd been there... You never would have known he was there. It was totally serendipitous that we Do you feel like um, the permafrost thawing out thing, like is it a race against time, like finding super well-preserved specimens like that? Like, have you run in, like, have you seen evidence of, you know, the permafrost thawing, like being a real thing? You know, like the lion cubs with, with hair on them and the, the, uh, <laughs> do you mean, pups you mean, is it increasing? Yeah. Now? Yeah. Like, do you it, see? Yeah. So you, you think it would be right. I mean, there's global warming, temp- mean annual temperature of Alaska is going up significantly, but. What what's happening is on the ground. There's so much uh, insulation from the overlying vegetation that you, we're not seeing yet widespread thermocarsting, so melting mm-hmm. and thawing. So I don't. It's not. Um, 
I don't think thawing is accelerating. What This is why we're working along these rivers, because the river is doing the thawing for you, mm-hmm. and it's done the same thing for, you know, 100,000 years. Going just as it meanders forth. across the... Yeah, just goes back and forth. Like meanders, meanders meander move stream. back and forth yeah. over time. So. so it's not like the whole place is thawing, and right. we're not in a race to save... Um, Resources. You hear, you well, hear why that, do you hear that you know? all the time, though? I feel like it's like a like it's like a Nat Geo. Well, I'm not going to get that funding. It's I'm like gonna... a Nat Geo talking <laughs> point that it's like everything's well, coming out. Yeah. It's a race against the clock. On the north coast of Alaska, the rate of coastal erosion is definitely increasing, and that also I think has to do with less sea ice and. Forming, which protects the coastline. Yeah. So when so there are storms, storms, it's also, causing more erosion. Also, I think we're also hearing, you know, the Russians are really in the mammoth tusk hunting now. So you kind of get the impression that, oh, yeah, they're all coming out of the permafrost now. They're everywhere in Siberia, but they're not. I mean, they know exactly where to go, and they're using, like, steam hoses, and, you know, they're mining for mammoth tusk. Oh, really? Yeah. So it's not like the whole Arctic is melting down now. It's just, it's happening in specific places, like Pam said, like the the coastal zones. But a lot of the, um, you know, the North Slope interior is not not yet feeling the big thaw, but it'll happen. It's a bigger issue in places like interior Alaska, where the permafrost is much warmer, like Fairbanks, where oh, it's more borderline. Yeah, yeah so definitely more borderline. Yeah, it doesn't take that much to melt the permafrost if the permafrost is only thirty-one degrees. Did you know Rocket Money can cancel a subscription for you? They'll even alert you when there's been an increase in a subscription price and negotiate rates for you. I can see my subscriptions in one place, and if I see something I don't want, Rocket Money can help me cancel it with just a few taps. You wouldn't believe how many people are paying for subscriptions they don't use. This happened to me. It's annoying. This helps you find it out and get rid of it. Well, Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions and monitors your spending and helps lower your bills so you can grow your savings. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash meat eater. That's rocketmoney.com slash meat eater. Rocketmoney.com slash meat eater. I want to tell you about an American-made success story and Black Buffalo's award-winning nicotine pouches. Black Buffalo was built by dippers with decades of smokeless tobacco use. Black Buffalo is all about the history and tradition of dip, but they understand the convenience and discretion modern-day consumers are looking for. Black Buffalo's nicotine pouches give you the versatility to consume discreetly, but keep the ritual with flavors dippers love. Mint, straight, and wintergreen, all proudly made right here in the USA. Tell them, Chili. The reason I like black buffalo pouches is, one, they're very discreet. And what I mean by that is I can throw one in and almost forget it's there. And I prefer 
the mint pouches. So if you're 21 or older, consume nicotine or tobacco and want to join the Black Buffalo herd, head over to blackbuffalo.com to learn more. You can order nicotine pouches online. They ship directly to most states or check out their store locator to purchase pouches at thousands of retail locations around the country. Black Buffalo Tobacco Alternative. Bold flavor, full pouches. Warning, this product contains nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. Black Buffalo products are intended for adults age 21 and older who are consumers of nicotine or tobacco. O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? you need a brake light fixed? you need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. When I was with Mike Cunz, I think I even put this in the thing I wrote. I was saying to Mike, I said, what's the coolest thing you could find? And to quote him, he said, I'd be flying along in my helicopter and there'd be a fucking hand sticking out of the ground. <laughs> yeah. When you're drifting along. Um, yeah, we're always looking. That you would find that you would find remains and it would be that here's, uh, here's some person from 25,000 years ago, 30,000 years ago, whatever the hell. And it'd rewrite all understanding. Yeah, it'd be fully clothed, would have yeah. all the tools. That's yeah. what Mike pointed out, too. That it would be the, the map, whole... The map to Tio del Fuego, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. That, that when, when Mike expounded on it, um, and, and I know he was, we were having, you know, I don't mean to make him seem uncouth, but I mean, he was, we were just kind of musing around the table, and, and it would be that there would be like a family group of people. I mean, because of the permafrost, it'd be all the things you never find. Yeah. The, the, clo- the, the clothing. Food. Yeah. What was in their bag. Well, that's one How reason. their tent, like how their shelters were constructed, whatever. Yeah. Just be like that. Like the, the bison bob, the bison bob of a nomadic Homo ice age yeah. hunting group. That's one reason Mike flew us up there was he figured if I got these poor people out there looking for bones and if they see a human bone then they'll call me mm-hmm. so we were like you know looking for him so that was part of our mission find something unusual call him he'll come fly in he'll find that little hand sticking up and then he'll <laughs> he'll he'll say you guys go back to camp i'll take care of this <laughs> i'll take it from here boys yeah. Yeah, go away it's an issue of numbers like i said earlier that you know we find lots of the herbivores there are a lot more herbivores and then you find many fewer carnivore bones and then humans there were probably even fewer humans than there were carnivores running around up there so the chances of Mm. 
stumbling upon the family that got stuck in quicksand in the river is really slim. But man, it ha- like it'll probably never. Who knows? But it has to be there. But we, I mean, we there were has to be a, there has to be a group of you know ice age hunters that whatever a landslide. Or I kept looking just for you know the clumsy guy who dropped his toolkit somewhere. You yeah. can find the whole little assemblage. Or so have you met this guy named Eski Willerslev? Nope. So he's I'd remember a, that. <laughs> he's Danish, and he, he's a trip. But um, he's he's one of the DNA guys, mm-hmm. and he's in Copenhagen. He's a, a colleague of Dave Melter's. Okay. So archaeology is kind of moving on now getting away from arrowheads and finding, you know, people buried in mud. And they're getting into, like, um, good old days. <laughs> environmental DNA. So DNA of people that's preserved in sediment. And that's really the new horizon. Mm. And I, I think if Eski had his way, he would um, come up to Alaska and other parts of North America and take a bunch of lake cores and try to find a lake where people had camped on the, on the beach Mm-hmm. And then they'd like, you know, peed in the water or, you know, just the refuge had drained into the water. And we'd pick up the ancient DNA preserved in these lake sediments. Which would be like final, re- like dead end resting places for it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that would be fairly conclusive. You know, then you could date the lake sediment and you could say, oh, well, look, there were people there 15,000 years ago or something. That's kind what of the he had his way. How can he not have his way? Money. It's all just... I mean, that'd be, it's, it would be a very expensive project, but we'll see what happens. I think Because he'd want to do hundreds of sites. Yeah, you'd yeah. have to do, it'd be like looking for a needle in a haystack because you'd have to find a lake where people camped and then there'd have to be enough human DNA excreted into the lake water to show up in the lake sediment. So it's not a sure thing at and all. And if it's on a hillside, there's no way it's going to still be there. Right. That's the whole geologically stable yep. site yeah. thing. Is that because they feel like there's no more surprises with physical artifacts or or physical tissue well or... i think steve probably has a good feeling feel for this after you know traipsing around with mike i mean it's a huge piece of real estate and you're looking for these little needles and haystacks and the preservation thing you know like 0.1 of one percent of the sites would ever be preserved and then you'd have to find it so, so it actually might be more efficient to go with the lake uh, study with the DNA. The, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And also yeah. if you were to find human remains, there are all these ethical and political questions about what kind of sampling you can oh, do. Oh, you'd be wading into a nightmare, man. So yeah. um getting the environmental DNA would be a lot more straightforward than an actual although it would be really exciting to find old human remains. Yeah. Has anyone ever pulled animal DNA off an ancient arrowhead? Yeah. Um, It was first done with um, proteins from blood, you know, in the little kind of crevices of projectile points. And a lot of people didn't really believe that. They were like, well, how do we know that that animal protein is actually that of a deer or bison or something? But more recently, people have been extracting uh, ancient DNA from projectile points. But it's, like Pam was saying, that there's a huge preservation problem because DNA is a very delicate compound and it breaks down. So the Arctic is the ideal place if you're going to find such a thing. And 
going back to the Mesa site, uh, I, I really wish that all those old Mesa points had been kept in a freezer because maybe they still have DNA. Oh, that's a good point. Mm. Yeah. But the trouble there is I don't think they were handled correctly when they were dug out of the ground. This is another thing about archaeologists today. They become enlightened and they always go, well, we're not going to dig the whole site. We're going to leave that because in 10 years there will be a whole bunch of new techniques, which, you know, tell us a bunch of things. Yeah, that's when I was, when I was with those guys they would talk about um they were they were always discussing where they might go back like which yeah. of these campsites might warrant going back and like dig it right and you imagine just going there with a shovel and digging <laughs> but it would be that they might do a square meter yeah. right right just yeah. do one square meter and then and then in a hundred or whatever in 3 years when there's completely different innovations and technologies someone could go do another meter and apply their you know, new academic rigor to that. That was one of the funny things at the Mesa site when Pam wasn't there, but I was up there one one summer day with Mike up on top, and they were digging these squares, and there were like 10 of them, and everybody had a square, and they had a little trowel with a brush. And I was like, oh, my God, how can you guys be doing this? This is really boring. Why don't just give me the shovel and let me dig? Find some stuff. Yeah. So Mike goes, oh, you can't do that, but here's one that we've dug, and we've dug it all the way down to gravel, and there's nothing left. And I said, well, can I dig that? And he goes, yeah, but it's a waste of time. So I got the shovel. I just started digging, and they were just all aghast, like, why are you letting them do this? And sure enough, about two feet down, we found a little projectile point <laughs> that it somehow wiggled down through the gravel. Oh, really? Yeah, but he was, like, kind of irritated. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know this, this is another thing that changes all the time. Like, what happened to all the stuff? What happened to all the bison and short-faced bears and step lions and woolly mammoths? And I was real hot on the, for a long time, I was hot on the Pleistocene, the Blitzkrieg hypothesis, because it was so tidy. Mm-hmm. It was like, dudes came and killed them all, right? And just seemed yeah. just great. You could, like... Fold it up and put it in your pocket. You know, it was just like a perfect explanation. Evil humans. Yeah. <laughs> what, uh, what's the latest? Like, why that time did like nine genera, like nine genera of animals. So like nine genuses of animals vanished from the Western hemisphere. What was so special that all those dozens of animals went extinct? Well, there was significant climate change going on. And I think one thing is you can't give one reason for all extinctions. Like it ver- it can vary a lot regionally. And so obviously the area that we know best is northern Alaska. And I think one thing about northern Alaska is the human density was never that high. And it's this vast area where these animals were ranging. So I don't think that human hunting had a huge impact on those animal populations. And our data from our bone collection shows that humans overlapped with horse and bison for probably a couple thousand years, and possibly even with mammoths for a while. So it seems like they could coexist. And Dan's itching to say something. 
No, it's just um, it's it's kind of the same old story in science. You know, the first thing we do is we latch on a simple explanation, mm-hmm. like Blitzkrieg. People overhunted; they killed all the animals. And then you realize, well, that doesn't kind of fit with some of the chronologies where people are rare, like on the North Slope or um, other places like on islands in the tropical Pacific. It's really well documented that all the endemic bird species went extinct after people showed up. So it was pretty obvious people killed them all. Or um, Moa in New Zealand is a really good example of overkill. So it works in some places, but not in others. So then the second stage is you go, okay, so it's not the same everywhere. It's complex. And then it just kind of keeps getting more and more complex because you realize, I think it was, I think it's more like 70 genera globally of megafauna. So animals over 100 pounds average weight went extinct. Globally. Globally. And then, but when you start looking at the records globally, you see, well, in Australia, almost all those extinctions happened before 40,000 years ago. In Africa, only like 12% of the megafauna went extinct. Well, I can tell you why that's true. Why? Because Africa had always had humans. Yeah, that's one of the, that's probably part of the explanation. So they could co they, they they had evolved together and it wasn't like a surprise attack. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but Africa is also different in other ways. It, it's a much more diverse set of habitats. Africa is a huge continent and it's right on the equator. And um, a, the combination of the, evolution with humans plus this kind of diversity of semi-arid habitats that are changing all the time. But anyway, so, but you see what I mean? The complexity grows on complexity. And I think everybody's kind of come around to this now where there's no one explanation that's going to fit all species. Some cases it is overkill, think moa. Other cases it's in uh, climate change, which is probably what happened on the North Slope where we went from um, well-drained substrate where you could make it with your little dainty bison hooves to now, there's no way that animal could get around. It would starve in a week, just because it's so boggy. Just sink, up there. sinking into yeah. the and in, in through the tussocks and into yeah. the into the mud or into the it's, tundra. It's kind of counterintuitive that at the end of the last ice age, as the climate got warmer in northern Alaska, it became a less favorable environment for these large animals. You kind of think, oh, it warms up and everything. There's more plants growing, but uh, the warmer temperatures allowed shrubs and peat to come in, which created this really boggy environment that then insulated the permafrost so the water never drains away. And it's just... And these were plains grazing animals for the most part? Well, like, or... they, they were mostly grazing animals so they needed large grasslands and so and grasslands by their nature are kind of well-drained hard soils and actually the youngest horse bones that we found on the north slope were in these sandy areas well-drained areas which suggest to us that the horses retreated to these last little sandy grasslands, but then eventually that became too small to support them, and you, they died out. But, do you have a sense of how how long? Like, it wasn't like one century the animals were there and then the next. Like, how do you have a sense of how long this extinction event but that that's a, that's a interesting. I just want to weigh in on that a little bit because I asked Meltzer about that. Like I used to have it that 
that, I don't know, in my head, I sort of pictured that like 13,000 years ago, 13,000 and one day ago, all that shit was there. And then, and then like, <laughs> you know, yeah. 12,364, whatever the hell, uh, it was all gone. And we talked to Meltzer about this. He goes, the, that, that window of time keeps broadening, broadening. And it wasn't like everybody all died on one day. It was, there was things that were, that were fading out over the course of 10,000 years. And I'm sure regionally it was also, like you said. And so back to the DNA preserved in sediment. So when an animal dies um, in a permafrost area, the DNA is often very well preserved if you can find it. So there's been, there's two studies now, one from the Yukon, one from Siberia, who have looked at these LUS sections. So LUS is windblown silt. Okay. That's L-O-E-S-S, right? Yeah, you yeah. got it. And it's frozen. So both of them are showing, are revealing that um, mammoth, bison, and even woolly rhinoceros in Siberia survived way into the Holocene. So well into the present interglacial, thousands of years after we thought they did, based hmm. on when the last, the most recent dated bone was. There was just was. an article that came out about it. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, you saw it in that nature. nature These guys one. are probably quoted in there. Probably. No, but I was reviewing that paper, but yeah, <laughs> yeah. But so that's a really big deal because it suddenly is that gets rid of the overkill hypothesis because people have been in Siberia for 30,000 years and yet woolly rhinoceros were stampeding around until 8,000 or 6,000. So it's really kind of this big wake up like, hey, we got a new source of data. It's telling us something totally different. And a lot of these animals were hanging on much more recently than we thought they were before. It demonstrates a vulnerability in getting your information from one from bones. Oh yeah, bones, oh, yeah. bones are because like I think that I always return to when I'm thinking about you know antiquity and it, and it gives it moves from paleontology to archaeology. Is that for a spe- for a period of time, the oldest site in the New World was in Chile. So how much shit is laying between there and the point of entry? <laughs> Like right. the oldest site, and I know it's been surpassed since then, but the oldest sort of like academically agreed upon site was thousands of miles away from the point of entry. So you imagine how much junk was laying between there that you never found. And I once put this to an anthropologist down in Colorado where I was sort of gauging his enthusiasm about finding more stuff. And he was you know, like the bone thing. He just wasn't like optimistic that you'd find more Clovis sites or more Folsom sites. And I was like, well, someone will turn it up. He goes, but think of how much ground we've turned up, how many roads we've built, houses we've built, railroads we've built, everything that's happened. We have a few. I don't feel that all of a sudden now it's going to be that we find tons more sites full of like bones and projectile points. It's going to need to be. It's going to be something else. Right. Like, it's just, we're not going to keep dragging this stuff up out of the, uh, you know, this stuff up out of the ground. It's not going to become at like an increased ratio. And he was talking about the Great Plains. But uh, to be able to dig into the stuff you're talking about now with taking lake bed sediments and finding DNA and stuff, it's like, that's a whole frontier, man. It makes you guys, I don't know the hell it means for you guys. Well, give us your job security. (laughs) Give give us some money. We'll have job security. We want to do that. We just don't have the money to get those cores. One of the interesting things about this, though, is that um, it's 
I think it's pretty well accepted by most people now that if humans hadn't started producing greenhouse gases in like mid-Holocene, so let's say five or 6,000 years ago, a lot of this was coming out of rice agriculture in Asia. If we hadn't started doing that, we would be back in the Ice Age now, which mm. meant that a lot of those big animals would probably have survived. So we would have had little refugia for woolly rhino and mammoth would have been up on Wrangell Island and so forth. And horses would have been running around, you know, in northern Alaska. And we would have gone back into the Ice Age quick enough that their ranges could have re-expanded and we would still have them. Do they, is there an idea that human impact on the environment goes back thousands of years? Yeah. It goes back probably five or 6,000 years through greenhouse gases. Burning. and Yeah, so we're... We're slash and burn agriculture. Yeah, we're, and we're burning. We're clearing for us, so all that CO two goes in the atmosphere. We're creating these rice paddies, which are just hotbeds for methane production, and methane's an incredible greenhouse gas. So if if we hadn't started messing around with agriculture, we might have stayed on that same cycle. Yeah, we could have stayed on the same cycle. Where during the interglacials, during the warm times, big animals would have become scarce. They were driven into like far northern refugia, and then when the ice age came on again, it was like, yeah, we're back in business. You know, the Arctic prairie is back, mammoth steppes back, and they spread all over the place again. Here's my last question for you. They're not Brody and Yanni. I have a last one for you. How hip are you to the idea? Like, do you care about support? these ideas where people are going to do these sort of cockamamie... Rewilding. Yeah, the cockamamie genetic things where you can, through various cross-breeding processes or whatever, create some approximation of a Pleistocene horse, create some approximation of a mammoth by, like, taking genetic information from mammoths and, and working it into contemporary elephants and then turning them back out and bringing back the ice age. Are you hip on this? I mean, like, are you like, that's a good idea. Well, the big problem with that is the environment that those animals inhabited is gone. And uh, so where are they going to live? Well, that this one feller in uh, Siberia, doesn't he have the idea that just them being there will make the environment? It'll be like them being there will turn it back into it's a grassland. It's kind of land. which came first, the chicken or the egg. And I I think that you have to have the environment before you can have the animal there. I don't think the animal. So you animals. don't think that the grazing animals came and turned tundra into grassland? No. Okay. Do you, Dan? <laughs> no. You I guys think... haven't talked about this? <laughs> I think, yeah. Let's put it mildly. No, I don't think that's possible. Um, and it's not just me. That's Dale Guthrie. You know who that is? Oh yeah, yeah. He he had he, that babe. He had that famous. He had he he had that famous dinner yeah. party where they served a thirty thousand year old bison. <laughs> yeah. I don't think anybody really ate it, but dude, out eating the whole thing. <laughs> but I think the whole rewilding thing is, it's kind of like that's a huge amount of resources, huge amount of scientific input and money input. And why don't we just save the animals we still yeah. got yeah. rather than trying to recreate something with these weird-ass, like... <laughs> Hybrids. What, what was that that old book about the island of Dr. Moreau or something? Yeah. Yeah. Remember that where he, he lived on this island, he created all these weird animals, and they all went wild and ate everybody? So why are we messing with that? Why don't we just preserve, like, the African elephant and the white rhino and so forth and so on? 
instead of screwing around trying to reinvent something that yeah it's gone i'm not i don't get enthusiastic about that idea i think that if i if one if a proponent of that idea were here i think they have this kind of fatalistic attitude that you'll never pull that off you'll never pull saving like that you're not going to save those things and the next best idea would be to create a protectable place like to a, try to like the grizzly bear thing out here on that road there, Livingston. <laughs> yeah, yeah. When I, yeah, yeah. Except when I want to see a grizzly, that's the first place I go. <laughs> you, you can watch them Except, roll barrels around inside of a inside of a log fortress. <laughs> but Steve, it's better than that. You could genetically engineer those grizzlies so they could be pettable. You know, they'd be nice grizzlies, right? and they'd be better grizzlies. Yeah. No, I think it's totally ridiculous, and I would think you guys, as the hunting community, would be really against rewilding. I mean, it just seems like... I, I haven't taken it seriously. I think you better, because it is serious. I mean, there's yeah. there's, there's a, a lot, lot of people interest. messing with it. Yeah, I haven't taken it seriously as a... Um, I, I, I only find it problematic when, when, it, when people start talking about trying to, like, recreate approximations of things. Um, especially if you get into this, we explored this with Bess Shapiro one time, you get this idea of like, what, ex- like, so what exactly is a passenger pigeon, right? Yeah. Here's an animal that was in flocks of millions, right? Uh, if you just, you know, the last one, like Martha died in the Cincinnati zoo, right? So <laughs> let's say you made a thing and you're like, okay, here's three of them. And that's what they, that's what they look like. That's them. Without flocks of millions changing forests like have you really made anything do you know what i mean and, and, and is there public appetite for flocks of birds that could destroy entire agricultural fields overnight <laughs> right. do you know what i mean so it's like to spend all this energy on something that where you can sort of look at it and go like yeah uh it's hard to explain why but that's roughly what you had sitting in that cage yeah but what i just about, don't care what about a mammoth but the, the, the way if they could honestly go if they could uh, and it's been explained to me that this isn't going to happen. If you could honestly go and, and find some things in the permafrost and here's a viable egg and here's a viable sperm. All right. Yeah. And which is not how it's going to go. And you combine those and create one behaviorally. They spent what they spent 13 years with their mom. Yeah. Learning how to do mammoth shit. So let's say you make one. What do you really have? Oh, I'd love to have a pet mammoth, but <laughs> but I, I don't think it's. I just think it's a crazy idea, and I just think we've messed up so many things on this planet ecologically yeah. by trying to intervene. And so, why do that when, as Dan said, we've got all these crises now that we should be trying to avert? I mean, we spend a lot of time in New Zealand, you know, and it's just an ecological disaster there. Sure. With, introduced species and whatnot. And even in Alaska, they're reintroducing bison to places where they haven't been bison for thousands of years. Yeah, but, that's, and, they, but they they managed to really muddy the waters on that question. Well, exactly. Uh, but I think um, even Based that... Based on dubious... Exactly. Which is right up your and, alley. Dubious bone finds. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And and for that matter, a muskox, which is my beloved species, you know, they were reintroduced to Alaska. Um, but 
that was after a much shorter time frame. They disappeared from Alaska in the late 1800s, and they were reintroduced, actually not to their native range in Alaska, but to Alaska and Nunavak in was the first the place, right? 1930s. Well, actually, they were in Fairbanks, and then they went to Nunavak, and then they made it back to the North Slope in the 1970s. So it was about a hundred years. Did after they, uh, they did they disappear for the same reasons? Climate change, or was that a legit overhunting situation? I think that it was basically the climate change. Muskox populations in our bone collections suggest this, that muskox and it persisted in Alaska for a really long time, but always at really low numbers. And so uh, as the climate changed, their populations were declining naturally. And they, both muskox and caribou populations fluctuate naturally in response to all kinds of different environmental conditions. And it is possible that humans may have killed the last one or two muskoxen in Alaska, but their population had declined on its own. And so that reintroduction, I feel better about because it was such a short time frame. It's kind of like the elk reintroductions in yeah. Eastern, yeah. the Eastern United the, the, States. They're still viable habitat for them. And you're putting and, the you're putting the actual animal back. Right. And you're um, not being like, oh, this is close to that. You're not adding a new species that you don't you're not sure how it's gonna interact with the other existing species that are already there. Some of the original rewilding people um weren't doing it through like genet they weren't proposing through genetic wizardry. They were proposing just take the closest shit you can find. Yeah. So yeah. take African animals and cheetahs and whatnot and just cut them loose on the Great Plains and call it good. Which makes <laughs> a lot more sense. Didn't you guys do a show on Nilgai and Texas? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So Texas has how many species of African and Asian antelope? It's got piles Dozens. of them. Oh, yeah. Some they have more. There's more in Texas. Yeah. Like scimitar horned orcs, they have more in Texas than, <laughs> than exist on native range. Yeah, which yeah. see that's that's kind of different. That's not the genetic rewi- genetic engineering rewilding, and I think that part of rewilding is a you know valid, acceptable. Yeah, and they've found they've had some cases where those well, the American like you know our our American bison, they've had cases where a species was saved because of private holders. Yeah, like there's mm-hmm. no art like you can't argue the point. That private collectors, cowboys, who at the last minute went out and gathered up buffalo off the Great Plains, mm-hmm. that if they hadn't done that, there wouldn't be any, and and put them in a fence somewhere, they'd be gone. I mean, there's a couple places where they held out, but you would have had a very very small thing. And if you look at how they actually were respread, so much of it funneled through these private individuals. And, you know, it's easy to like look down at Texas and be like, oh, they're messing with this and messing with that. But there are cases where those privately held animals wound up becoming like impactful toward putting animals back on the landscape. Um, we'll revisit the rewilding thing. But I think that, I, like you like you said, I would rather take the money and expertise and stop the bleeding. Yeah. And not try to graft new, stop the bleeding on the body and not try to like, Graft new limbs. It's a new appendage. <laughs> <laughs> it's 
especially if it's passenger pigeons. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> pigeons are nice, but... <laughs> Yeah. Although it would have been remarkable to see those huge flocks sure, flying over, but sure, they they say the last big the last big flock was killed not far north of where I grew up. Really? Yeah. Do you know that Petoskey, Michigan? I think it was the last big like big bang. Is there a monument there? I don't know, Martha. but maybe I should make one. A you big should. pile. A big, yeah. <laughs> I keep fluctuating on what I want to do when I retire. I was gonna um. I was going to spend it devoted to a very arcane or very weird seeming pursuit of getting Hunter's Orange Laws standardized around the country. I thought you were going to become a large pumpkin enthusiast. Oh, well, I was, I was going to become a large I was going to become a large pumpkin enthusiast. I was going to push to have it be that you had to wear an orange hat everywhere you went. And that's it. Then I was going to push to have National Yellowstone National Park turned into a wilderness area and have all the infrastructure removed. Wow. Now I might find and make monuments to where I think the last thing, the last big, like the last thing went extinct. Like on this place in 1804, <laughs> the last buffalo in Kentucky was shot. Yeah, that, That'd be more like 1820. That yeah. would have redeeming social value. I can't say an artistic. No. I do like them huge freaking pumpkins, man. The kind where you, you gotta get a fork I truck. You can they do, actually raise them on both. pallets. Yep. You can do both, Steve. <laughs> All right, guys. I'm glad you finally came down, man. I've been pestering the shit out of Corinne to get you guys on the show. I want you to go back home, talk to your buddy Mike Cunz, get him fired up, tell him the pandemic will never end. It's a soft end. The end will look like this. The end will be that it's like a cold or the flu. Yeah. That tell him that we're almost to the end. But it wasn't the end he was looking for. They flew to New York this fall. So. He did not. What? Oh, you shouldn't have told him that. <laughs> but Dude, Corinne, Corinne, that really makes Corinne seem like not a strong producer. Man. Yeah. But she didn't find that. She hasn't been looking at Flight Manifest. She, she didn't hire <laughs> a be like, private investigator. She's like, well, uh, Mike, that, that, that's awkward because my research indicates that you have left Fairbanks. <laughs> I have receipts. Uh, I, I know we're trying to wrap this up, but so Cal had to leave halfway through. He could not stay away. He asked me to ask a question. <laughs> uh, and it, it's, it's sort of, you know, a good bow to put on it. And he said, in the hunt for hunting everything ancient. Oh, if it's a good bow, let these guys do their questions. Oh, okay. Because what if they don't can, have a tight bow? I'll, I'll, sure. Cal's yep. is good. I don't, and I, but I'm going <laughs> to save it for next time. Speaking of, it's been a while since you've you've asked about concluders. That word hasn't been said on this podcast in probably over a year. I, I kind of <laughs> gave up on it. Uh, okay. I should get back to that. Yeah, you should. Here's Cal's concluder. Here's Cal's, here's Cal's concluder. In the hunt for everything ancient, have you ever dis- discovered something modern that has been equally as surprising or interesting? Oh. Oh. <laughs> Red alders. (laughs) Okay, yeah. No, so along one of these rivers that we routinely go down, uh, one day we're paddling along, and off in the alder-choked (laughs) hellhole was a purple alder. And so it was like, With purple leaves. With purple leaves. So you got to imagine the sea of green, green alder thicket, really unpleasant, full of mosquitoes. In the middle is one purple alder. So, of course, we got off and went in there and stomped around and got bit by mosquitoes. And it was like, well, maybe we can take one of these back and grow it and then become multimillionaires. 
from, you know, like selling purple alders. So you load that in your canoe. <laughs> so we load in this little, <laughs> this little root with a little sprout, a little tiny one, took it back and spent hours and hours and hundreds of dollars trying to cultivate this thing <laughs> and it died. So it's still out there though, in the middle of the alder choked hellhole. Yeah. Because at least in Fairbanks, landscaping options are kind of limited, but alders grow yeah. like anything. So you could have purple alder bushes, you know, hedges. So you could have been like from the same mentality that brought us kudzu. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but there's already alders growing there. So but you, I mean, you must have asked a botanist about it. And is it a subspecies or... Uh, we asked, just a freak specimen. Um, it's a um, it's a weird, just genetic. It's quite common, and you know, plants have their um, have variable chromosome numbers. Their genetics are really messy compared to mammalian genetics, and so apparently, it's quite common to get these weird little anomalies like that. And um, if we ever go back there. Did you drop a waypoint on it? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It'll yeah. cost you a lot, though. <laughs> All right, guys. Thanks for coming down. Yeah, well, thank you. Was Light a, a fire yeah. under Cunz's ass for us. Discussion. Okay. Yeah. Hey, you guys didn't have any concluders. Anything we missed that you felt that you'd like to share with the world? Yeah, do like a how to find your work and how to support your research or something. Yeah, I was going to say, we should put out a call to if there's anybody out there that would like to uh, help fund this uh, lake sediment research that you guys would like to do, how they could help that out. Yeah, University of Alaska has a very nice way to do things like that. You can... Um, Just Venmo them. <laughs> you can send me an email, and then um, I'll get in touch with the foundation at University of Alaska. It's tax deductible. Your money, we've done this before, and uh, money comes in. They put it in a special account. It can't be abused or stolen or anything else. We um, use that money for our research, and we write a report to the donor, and the um, foundation people love it. And that's the Center for Arctic Biology. Uh, Institute of Arctic Biology. Institute of Arctic Biology. At University of Alaska Fairbanks. But um, So someone could earmark that money. Yeah. yeah. And just lock it in to this is what it's going to be used for. It's not going to disappear into some overall, you know, like university lawn mowing fund or something. But um, I think, I don't know, I hope the listeners, if you're out there somewhere, you realize that this isn't just some arcane field that we're pursuing. It actually has real... Uh, implications for conservation in the future because we we really need to figure out what makes big animals go extinct because there's a lot of big animals going extinct right now and the more we can learn the better and so there's a lot of really basic research that remains to be done and I think you kind of gather from our discussion today it reaches into archaeology and also into genetics like uh, Beth Shapiro and Mike Kunz and um, Dave Meltzer the other archaeologist so it's a really uh, active field, this kind of interface between DNA, evolution, and conservation. I'm just glad they can't keep pointing their finger at hunters. Yeah, <laughs> well, you guys should be relieved. Overkill is dead except on tropical islands, so you guys should feel relaxed about that. I got a challenge for listeners. Uh, every time you're thumbing through, uh, I don't know, going through and you're finding articles from Wall Street Journal, New York Times, Nat Geo, dealing with something to do with old-ass bones in Siberia or Alaska or something to do with mammoths, I challenge you to read the article, then read all the citations and not encounter 
the names Pamela Groves and Daniel Mann. It's impossible. <laughs> it's impossible. You're always in there. Well, that's good. I, I didn't know that. That's good. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys. Thanks for coming down. Yeah, thank you. Thank that was you. Fun. Thank you. Hey guys, turkey season is in full swing right now, and if you are planning on getting after it, make sure to pick up some Meat Eater Phelps turkey calls to stuff into the old turkey vest or into your fanny pack right now. I carry a few different things. I like to use mouth calls, and I like to use pot calls. Mouth calls or diaphragms, I like them because it gives you hand-free calling, meaning when you're working a bird up close, you can have your gun on your knee, finger on the trigger, ready to roll, and still be making turkey sounds. I like pot calls. I just like pot calls. I enjoy calling with a pot call. Whatever direction you go, including a box call, which I don't personally use too much, but they're fun and great, and I started out with them. Yanni, on the other hand, one of my main turkey hunting buddies, he loves box calls. And what's funny is I'll now and then look to him and give him the look that means get out your box call and find us a turkey. So it's not that I don't like them. I just have Yanni use his. Then I don't have to carry it. Go to Phelps Game Calls. Get calls that are made in the USA and get calls that'll get them close. Find yours at phelpsgamecalls.com today.